Welcome to the Take A Seat Podcast. This podcast brings awareness to disability sports and supports. We are talking to experts and athletes with a disability from around the world. Before we get stuck into this episode, we want to say a massive thank you to our sponsor, the Suncoast Spinners. The Suncoast Spinners are a social wheelchair-based sporting club. They operate multiple programs for people of all ages and abilities in basketball, rugby and more. Follow Suncoast Spinners on Facebook, Instagram and find out more about them at suncoastspinners.com.au. All right. Well, welcome back. Welcome back. It's episode four. Uh, I mean, we we left episode three, and and we were messaging around trying to trying to find the guest of the fourth. And and you've absolutely outdone yourself now, mate. Like I can't believe it. Uh, I'm trying. I'm trying. You know, we've got some absolute weapons of guests that are coming on, but this one, he's just smashed it out of the park in the last couple of years. In particular, absolute legend. All right, mate. I'm on the edge of my seat. So who have we got on? We got Daniel Michelle on today. He is. Four-time world champion in Botcher BC3. He is the current bronze medalist from Tokyo Paralympics 2020. He is current world ranking number three. Absolute legend. Some impressive stats right there. Impressive stats. He is also the first Aussie to represent Australia in Botcher from the year 2000 to 2016. Like... Mate, that's this a, guy is unreal. That's a good good hold right there. Well, Dan, we would like to welcome you to take a seat with us on the Take a Seat podcast. So welcome. Thank you very much. I'm more than happy to be here. Love to hear it. Hey, what drove you into Bocce? Yeah, so for me, Bocce, um, it, it kind of came around yeah, a really good time for me in my life where um, I, I kind of grew up without any sport that I could play um, as a person with a severe physical disability, I looked around me and um, never really saw any sport that, that was accessible to me. So, and, and being quite a sporty kid from a sporty family, living in a sporty country like Australia, it was um, really difficult for me to, to kind of just um, come to terms with the fact that well, I may never be able to play a sport myself in my life. And then, you know, um, one day I was at a, at a camp for people with disabilities when I was 15. And um, this particular day at the camp, um, some of the coaches from watching New South Wales came along and, and demonstrated the sport. And, um, you know, when I saw it on the program, I kind of um, thought, oh, I won't really bother going to that one because I'm sure it's just one of those other disability sports that, you know, it, it might be for certain types of disabilities, but it won't be for people like me, you know. So but for whatever for whatever reason, I, I went along anyway. Um, I don't know what drove me to go along, but maybe it's just that, you know, a little bit of um, inquisitiveness that was left. And um, I went along and... Um, had to go and quickly realised it was it was a sport that I could play and that was kind of all I needed and from there it was just like you know what an opportunity to dive in and um and be a part of be a part of the sport. That's excellent. And sorry, do you mind uh, just just sharing uh, for the context of, of the listeners your your disability or, or diagnosis? Yep, yep. So my disability is called spinal muscular atrophy, type two. So I've been in a wheelchair since I was five years old. Can't really move much of my body at all. So I rely on. Um, physical assistance for most tasks, um, and yeah, I've been pretty much that way since I was since I can remember really. Now that's um, that's really interesting because our last guest was was, was uh, spinal, spinal mus- muscular atrophy type one. Yeah, so there's there's not much difference between uh, both Nathan and Dan. There's a slight difference in where 
the actual diagnosis is found or the gene type itself. But yeah, you have very, very similar characteristics and traits to our previous guest, which is great. Um, Completely different sports, but similar disability diagnosis. So leading off that, I can see in the the, uh, Zoom chat that you're sitting in an electric powered chair by the looks of things. Yeah. And is that your main main mode of, of mobility mobility around the, around the house and around in the yeah. community? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I've, I've used an electric wheelchair since I was five, which is um, when I was five, it was quite quite rare for people to be using a chair that old. But nowadays, I know people who are in electric chairs from the age of two. So it's um, yeah, it's come a long way. But yeah, I've, I've always been in an electric chair. Prior to that, I was in a pram, so I've never been able to walk or. Um, or use a manual chair, and uh, that's how I, I access the world via my electric chair. Yeah, we've seen that uh, on your actual electric chair, you have a bionic arm as well. Yeah, that's um, that's a real uh, life changing um, piece of assistive technology. That is, so I got that when I was about sixteen. Um, we fundraised fifty thousand dollars, primarily via the Steve Waugh Foundation, to to fund the arm, and uh, yeah, that's kind of opened up a whole another life to me. So that's given me a level of independence that. Um, I know, you know, I'm very lucky to have as, as a person with SMA type 2. It gives me a life that's quite different to a lot of my friends who have also this disability. So uh, that allows me to, to get drinks and, and food and allows me to open doors and press elevator buttons and do all those kind of everyday things that I wouldn't otherwise be able to do. How, how did you go about finding that that was, that was an appropriate support or was a consultation with uh, an OT, uh, at that point prosthetics? How did that sort of snowball into having a bionic arm that it is now able to do all of these things for you yeah absolutely well I, i'm very lucky that my mum works in the industry of disability as well so she's really got um you know either the ground um when it comes to a lot of a lot of technology and um she's always been very progressive with 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 myself and um wanting me to have access to the to the best technologies possible so um i think she was out and about for work at a conference and um at this particular conference the the company who produces this arm was there and um, she kind of was there and just thought, my God, this would be great for Daniel. When we found out that, you know, the $50,000 price tag, we uh, we just attacked that like we would any other challenge and um, and, and didn't uh, allow that to be a barrier and went out there and fundraised that amount. And um, yeah, here I am, you know, nearly 10 years later and it's made such a difference. So it was all worth it in the end. Yeah. Unbelievable. Um, obviously, yeah. traveling the world, that's going to make a big difference uh, with a bionic arm, but you can see in the background of your video there as well, you've got hoist to transfer in and out of bed, general mobility. And when we spoke to Nathan last week, there was a lot of house modifications that were made to his house. Someone that's traveling the world to play this sport, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is you have to play four tournaments around the world throughout the year between the four years of Paralympics to be able to qualify for the Paralympics. How do you go about, obviously you can't take all the equipment with you, um, do you find a sca- accessible hotels? How do you go about traveling the world? Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. Um, as you say, I'm, I'm sort of no stranger to, to aircrafts and hotel rooms. And um, I think over the over the years and with the experience that you gather, you kind of just work out um, little tricks and, and, and processes that make the whole thing easier. So, um, you know, I guess the first thing you got to do is surround yourself with people with, you know, can-do attitudes and people who have the right kind of... Um, skill set mentally and physically to be able to assist you on these trips and um fortunately for me over ashley and um and, and our broader team who's just so um so good with that sort of stuff so we always just make it work and you know staying in, in hotels it, it, it's not always perfect but um 
as long as you have kind of the attitude that that you make it work, it, it always tends to work out in the end. That's so true. Yeah, I've I've been lucky enough to travel with uh, the Queensland Wheelchair Rugby League side, uh, and and there's been many a times it, you you show up to a hotel that is accessible and. Uh, not entirely accessible and you but you don't find that out until you get to the room after they've said yeah it's a wheelchair accessible room and then you know you've got Corey uh, paraplegic and he's trying to get in this door and he just can't do it the bathroom there's a lip into the bathroom I said well what are we doing you know and then there's no uh if he doesn't bring his um shower chair then we've got to fight you know you've got to ask reception for a plastic chair from down the foyer or something rather and but like you said that can do attitude that's that's what saves the day yeah you know, that just you know finding a way where there's a will there's a way um and if yeah. you're willing to adapt and and push through it you're gonna have a good time uh you did mention ashley there uh, do you want to give us a bit more insight obviously uh watching the tv and when you're winning the medal ashley was there with you but to Give us some insight as to how you met Ashley, who she is to you. Is she a support, uh, classified as a support worker when you're overseas? And what's your role, role with Ashley together? I met Ashley in 2013 when I just made it onto the junior Australian team. I was selected into like a Paralympic preparation camp for Rio at that time. And um, I was looking for a new uh, ramp assistant, as I recall back then. They're now called ramp operators. And at the time, my mum was doing it um, because that's kind of what, what happened for, for botcha players when they first got involved. It was usually a family member um, who would help them, you know, because it just made sense. And Ashley was working at the same company as my mum at, at the time as a support worker. And um, my mum my was there and um, was asking around if anyone would like to kind of have a job with me as a ramp assistant. And Ashley was there and she, she said, yeah, that'd be really cool. So we met then and um, have been together ever since. So she is, yeah, my ramp operator. She's also a major support worker for me. Um, it helps me with all manner of things. And um, yeah, as you say, when we're overseas, it's kind of, you know, um, me and her and um, yeah, and, and we kind of, um, yeah, do everything with each other. So that's kind of how it works. Excellent, excellent. So getting into bocce, for those that don't know, from what I've seen, uh, Cam, Cam's done a bunch of uh, YouTube videos watching. He sent me videos yeah. nonstop all weekend. Right. <laughs> so I've I've had I've had about fifteen minutes worth of, of good good content to watch, uh, if not like twenty. I think probably only watched fifteen. But yeah. <laughs> so, so from what I've seen, it's almost like a combination of lawn bowls, cross, um, billards. Is that something that that people might be able to draw on to give them a visual representation of what what it looks like? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's got similarities. I think um, objectively, it's very similar to to lawn bowls in the sense that you've got a, ta- a target ball, and um, the objective of the game is to to try and land your balls as close as possible to the target. Um, in bowls, I think you know the balls are quite a lot larger and a lot heavier. So we use we use leather balls that are slightly larger than a tennis ball in size. Um, but then, yeah, there's also a lot of crossover with snooker and stuff um, that's quite different to bowls where, you know, bowls is a fairly, um, it, it's, I, I call it a less dynamic game. Um, in Boccia, there's a much wider array of shot shot choices. So you're knocking balls out, you're knocking balls up, you're ricocheting off balls. And there's such a massive array of shots that, that you can be playing. So it's... Um, it's like bowls, but it's um, a little more dynamic. Some of the things that I have seen is obviously that botcha, there is different types of shots, but there's different classifications. So you're a BC3, so there's four classifications in botcha, correct? Correct, yep. Do you want to give everyone a real brief rundown on the B3 
basics of what you need to know to play botcha, as in classification, how you fall in yep. BC3, and then also the actual real basic rules so that people can kind of understand what it is. The Yeah, it is similar to uh, lawn bowls and it is similar to bocce, um, but they are different. And uh, one of the stats that I've actually found is it's one of the two sports in the entire Paralympics that does not have a comparable event or sport. So yes, it is similar to lawn bowls. It is similar to botcha, but it is one of two sports that does not have a, a Paralympic or Olympic comparable event. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, so I'll start with the classifications. Um, as you mentioned, there's four there's four classifications in the sport: um, BC one through to BC four. I'm a BC three, as you mentioned. So in the BC three classification, uh, it's for the most physically disabled botcha players, and basically. We aren't able to throw the balls ourselves, so we use a ramp and we have a ramp operator. In my classification, it's all one-way communication, so I'm allowed to communicate with Ashley, but she's not allowed to communicate back with me at all, and she's also not allowed to look at the court, so she has to have her back to the court the entire time. Uh, that way, I guess, it kind of guarantees that it's all the athlete who's kind of making decisions and, and, and playing the game, and the ramp operator is kind of an extension of the athlete. So that's how we play. The other classifications, they are able to throw the ball in different ways. So BC1 and BC2 are some people with cerebral palsy. BC1, they require assistance on court in in the way of, um, you know, being handed the ball or helping pick the balls up, whereas the BC2s don't need that assistance. And the BC4s are also throwers, but they have a neuromuscular condition, like a muscular dystrophy or a spinal cord injury or something like that. So a little bit different. So that's the four classifications. And obviously you only compete within your own classification. Yeah. And then when it comes to the game itself, I guess, um, you know, it's, it's, as you mentioned, it's one of two uh, Olympic sports that have no Olympic counterparts. So it's a pretty special sport within the Paralympic movement. Um, the other sport being goalball. So yeah, it's, it's pretty awesome to be a part of a sport like that. I guess we've mentioned, you know, objectively it is similar to lawn bowls. Uh, you have six balls, um, six red balls and six blue balls. One player plays with red, one player plays with blue. And the idea of the game essentially is to, to get your balls as close as you can to the jack. The balls are different different in, in lots of ways. So generally within a set of six, um, a player will have a, a range of hard misses with their balls. So they have like a, a softer one, some medium ones and some harder ones as well for different shot types. Um, so it's quite a strategic and, um, and yeah, dynamic game in that sense. Yeah, no, it definitely sounds. Now... There's a couple different shots. Yes. Uh, so watching the things that we've been watching, watching the Paralympics and when the commentators do explain it, there's a slice, there's an up and over, there's a few different things. But the one that we can't wrap our head around uh, as to how it scores is the on top where the ball sits on yeah. top of another ball. How do they score that? How do you determine whose ball's closer if it's sitting on top of another ball? <laughs> yeah, it can be tricky. Um, fortunately, I haven't been a part of too many games where um, the ball's been on top and kind of not touching the jack. So that's normally pretty easy. If, if if you land up on top when there's, you know, a cluster of balls and and your ball lands up on top and it's landing on the jack, then it's touching the jack the same way that any other ball would be touching the jack. So that's fairly easy. But but you're right, if if it kind of ends up on top of a couple of other balls and um and, it, and it's not on the jack, then it, it requires some sort of skillful measuring. Um, so we, we do have the tools available to... To measure that but then you kind of just got to have a referee with some with some steady hands to make sure they're um they're doing the job right so and that's no um that's no uh, mean feat either you know I, I remember um in my bronze medal match um in the first end when i was um 
when I was playing Scott McCowan from, from GB and um, the end had finished up and the referee was trying to measure and she was shaking so much. She must have been so nervous that we had to call the head referee over to, to do the measurements. It was just so, yeah, it was so close and uh, we didn't want it to, to kind of mess up. So um, You were saying earlier that uh, obviously Ashley and yourself aren't allowed to communicate and she's not allowed to look at the court. I know every person's going to be slightly different, but... What's some little signs and keys? Uh, obviously, if she's not allowed to look at the court, do you tell her, okay, you've got to move two centimetres to the left, put a half ramp on, a full ramp? Um, yourself, you use it, it, terminology, is it a poker um, to be able to release the ball? Yep. How far do you yep. tell her, uh, you know, how much weight to add to it, what type of ball? What type of key communication do you, the both of you use? Yeah, yeah. well, the communication has to be very succinct because – I should have probably mentioned before, you only have six minutes per end to um, to play your six balls. So it's kind of averages out to one minute per ball, which um, goes pretty quick when you're, when you're trying to get a lot of communication uh, in. So, um, yeah, we have to have a really good relationship on court. Ashley has to really understand what, what I wanted to do, and um, that comes with a lot of practice. But, yeah, basically what it is is um, uh, I, I just direct her left or right with the ramp. Um, and then in terms of height on the ramp, um, I, I had my ramp referenced out kind of all the way up the ramp in different sort of uh, lines, which, which correlate with numbers. So if I want to release the ball from, say, 16 and a half, then she knows where on the ramp that the, the slide needs to go to make sure the ball's at the right spot. And then, yeah, I use a mouth pointer to release the ball. So um, that has to be, you know, in my mouth in the right position and all that to make it happen. So there's a fair bit that needs to go right in order for, you know, a successful shot to, to come off. That's awesome. Um, one of the things that I have seen as well is you, you take the beast around the world with you. What's in the beast? If you still use the beast, um, what's in there? Yeah, that's just my, um, that was my um, my kind of big uh, case that I carry all my gear around in. So we had the beast. We also had the coffin because so it looked a lot like a coffin. It was so big and, um, and bulky. So um, we had a few different um, yeah, bits of uh, equipment bags. Um, but yeah, I still... Um, it's a little bit smaller and, and, and uh, easier to get around now. We, we bought a, um, a rifle case and it's a bit, you know, it's a little bit um, more inconspicuous. So it, it's a bit better. But yeah, it just carries around my ramp and, and all my um, bits, of, bits and pieces that I need to play with, basically, except for the balls, which I, I take separately. Okay. okay. Yeah, nice. I want to slightly touch back on school life. Cameron, Cameron's got here, so he was watching... Uh, a few other interviews that, that perhaps uh, a few interview or podcast that you were on yeah. earlier, and uh, he's quoted that you, that you you said that you didn't want to stand out in school. Now, you did mention at the start of the episode that uh, was it, and it was a was it a uh, a special needs school? Was that is that? I was I, I attended a mainstream school my whole life. Yep. which was yeah, which was really I think it was really great, um, and the way that it needed to be for me. I mean, I'm all all there intellectually so it didn't make too much sense for me to to kind of go down a different route but um mm. yeah definitely i think for me being so different to the people around me it was difficult at, at times you know when, when i was a young kid kindergarten year one year two you don't really notice these things so much but then you get to an age where you start to realize how different you are to your peers and um and how you can't really participate in the same ways you know on in the playground and stuff like that so was that something that perhaps you put on yourself or was that something that you sort of felt yeah. from the social complex of other kids yeah no I mean, definitely it's it, it's a, it's um it's definitely insecurity it comes from 
from within. I don't think it's too different to a lot of different things that people experience in school. But it's probably just um, magnified to probably a larger extent, um, just in the sense that, you know, um, it just yeah, it became it became difficult to to be social for me, just because I, I didn't want to kind of um, stand out. I didn't want um, yeah, I didn't want to kind of I don't know be ogled and, and looked at and and um and be seen as different. Uh, it just because I guess you know I was feeling all of those emotions and hormones and stuff that you get when you're a teenager, and um, it kind of just yeah amplified everything so much. So yeah, it was it was a tricky time, and I became quite reclusive. Um, withdrew from a lot of a lot of you know social environments and um yeah became quite a miserable person because of it also definitely a period of my life that was um you know not the best for sure and then you said that uh you know at the age of 15 you found botcha at that sports camp which really changed your life previous leading into that uh you had found that you were just living day day to day life you weren't actually wanting to find a purpose you didn't know where you were going to go in in life um, and then Bocce give you this direction that you're like, wow, I know what I can do and where I can be and kind of brought you into a spotlight. Do you find that the sport really was that pivotal point from school, still being 15, you're still at school. How did you feel once you'd found that spot that you're like, okay, I don't want to be in, in the shadows anymore. I want to be known who I am. I want to go forward and I want to make my life purposeful. What what Was it the sport or was there something else in it? Um, it was definitely a sport in the sense that um – you know, when I looked around at, at my prospects and what I could do, um, and it's probably no different to a lot of people in school, not, everyone's kind of trying to figure out who they are and what they want to become and all these types of things. But for me, the options that were on the table, none of them really appealed to me in any sort of way. So I didn't really feel inclined to to um, to do anything that I was being told to do, you know, whether it was um, to go and study this or to do that and, and, and the different things that people were saying I should do, I just none of it none of it really hit home and none of it really inspired a passion in me. Um, I was always so hugely passionate about sport, one of my first loves, and um, I, I just loved watching and being involved in as many sports as I could, even though it was mostly just spectating from the sidelines. So when I, when I sort of found Butcher and realised that, you know, the Paralympic pathway it had and the ability for me to, to take that sport to the highest level um, and represent my country and and um, compete at the Paralympic Games, you know, such an, a massive, esteemed sporting platform. Um, it just, it just, you know, invoked this massive passion in me to, to commit myself to becoming the best butcher player that I could become. And um, it just, I think everyone needs that. I think everyone needs kind of something that they're passionate about, something that, you know, a reason to get up in the morning every day and, and work towards being a better person. And um, for me, butcher is that. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, participating at the Paralympics is, is a massive feat. So, you know, Congratulations! Uh, I don't think we we said that before, but congratulations! Uh, it was ranked third third ranked, and mm. yeah. final final placings in in Tokyo. Yeah, bronze medal in Tokyo. Yeah, bronze medal. So yeah, and it's not easy. So how hundred athletes get to go to the Paralympics for Bosha, isn't it? Uh, I'd be around about that. Yeah, I'm not sure of the exact number, but across all the classifications, would be close to that. Yeah. So to be third out of about a hundred athletes is unbelievable, um, and that's without you know grassroots uh, bosher players, everyone leading up to that level uh, to get there. As we said, you have to compete at four separate events throughout 
over the four years. So that's 16 events around the world. And then you have to get qualification and then be ranked. Like, that's a huge feat. It's really yeah. impressive, yeah. I, I want to um, just quickly touch back. I've heard other stories of, uh, of um, young, young children or people with disabilities that uh, they're not able to participate in the mainstream sports or in the sporting clubs and they do participate uh, as, as you said like spectating from the sidelines or participating from the sidelines is that something that you found in, enjoyable and was it was it sort of did it make you feel like you still belonged in the team in the club or was it just sort of further separating you from mainstream yeah sport? yeah no yeah it's an interesting question and um i think it'd be the both interestingly i think um I, you know, I really enjoy still to this day watching and, and being a part of of different clubs and um you know i'm i'm a big part of my younger brother's sporting career as well he's a semi-professional soccer player and i've followed him since he was seven years old and kind of for a long time lived vicariously uh through him and his sporting um you know um journey when he was younger so definitely found a lot of purpose in that as well but at the same time there was that, that there was that kind of barrier uh, between you know watching and, and the influence you could have from watching as opposed to actually being on the field of play and doing it yourself. So it, it was it, it was definitely, um, it was something, but it wasn't really enough for me to, to to get that full level of fulfillment. Have you played any other sports or what other sports were you involved in? So, yeah, I, I played a little bit of um, like na- national electric wheelchair sports, um, playing some uh, wheelchair rugby and that, uh, which I found really fun. Um, and I enjoyed it a lot, but I, I mainly played recreationally. And um, for me, I, I always had this kind of dream to to play for my country and to play on the highest level. And, um, you know, I wanted a sport that had that pathway. And um, with, with the wheelchair, you know, electric wheelchair, um, soccer and, and, and rugby, there wasn't really that pathway to, to an elite level. So for me, it didn't really kind of fully inspire that passion. Um, so Boccia, once once I found Boccia and found the, the pathway to the Paralympic Games, that was kind of the holy grail for me. Um, we have seen here that when you were growing up, going through that mission of finding a purpose and everything, that you said that there was nothing on TV, uh, there was no interactions in society that led you to disability sport until you were 15. Mm-hmm. But then you saw that the changes, and you see how changes for children of the future, you want to be able to be a face for that and you want to be in front and figure and inspire kids and be that purpose how's your perspective on that now being from uh, the tokyo games coming home with a bronze medal being world number three how do you see yourself and kids coming up to you getting photos i have seen an interview with your brother where he's like it's uh interesting having your brother everyone knows him and he's famous and people want to be around him how do you find that now that, that you've found that purpose yeah, it's pretty special to be that kind of person now that um, I'm able to to be the inspiration for a lot of young kids with disabilities um, because I see myself so much in those kids. You know, I see myself as being um, that 15-year-old with, with, with little purpose and with um, with no sport to play, finally finding butcher. And for me, if I can be, um, you know, seen and, and out there to, to a greater extent that... Um, you know, maybe a kid four or five years earlier might be able to find Boccia than what I did. Um, that would mean everything to me. So, you know, I truly believe that you can't be what you can't see. So the more that you're out there, um, for, for me, like, you know, it's just such a niche kind of um, 
uh, community where it needs to be kind of um, acknowledged that how important sport is for all people, you know, and, and especially for people with severe physical disabilities and um, for me to be kind of the, I guess, the talisman for that and to, to, to be the person for these guys to look up to and aspire to be like, um, that's definitely a special, special role. We have here exactly a quote from yourself before Rio Olympics. I'm going to read it out, so hopefully I don't stuff it up uh, too much. <laughs> My reading's not the greatest, but um, this is something that you said before uh, selection at Rio. Um, we'll have a huge impact on the sport and to the reputation and perception of people with severe disabilities. The overriding public perception surrounding severe disabilities is that people living with these disabilities aren't really capable of succeeding in a sporting atmosphere. There is an emphasis on being successful through academia, but sport is never really promoted as an avenue through which people with severe physical disabilities can achieve enjoyment and also success. That's in reference to obviously being successful at the Paralympics. Yes. And how do you feel now having a bronze medal around your neck, a four-time world champion, ranked number three, and hearing that back to yourself um, pre-Rio? Yeah, absolutely. You know, that, that came from a place um, of my experience growing up. You know, that was that was my experience living with a disability, um, a severe disability. Uh, you know, when I mentioned how much I love sports and stuff, I was kind of... Um, People kind of, you know, and people I looked up to and people I respected, you know, teachers and um, and family, friends and people. It was kind of like, oh, well, you can't really do that. You know, you have to, you know, don't worry too much about that. You know, think about all the stuff you can do and stuff. And um, for me, that kind of still to this day is the overriding perception in, in, in society is that people with, with living with severe disabilities, they can't play sport. You know, maybe they can become a lawyer or a doctor or they can publish some sort of, um, you know, dissertations or whatever, but they can't play sport. And for me, I wanted to change that. So doing what I've done, playing sport at a high level, um, winning a medal at the Paralympic Games, hopefully it's going away to, towards changing those attitudes and um, I'll continue to work throughout my life to, to do that for sure. Yeah. Something else I've read, which has gone down a little bit of a different pathway, a fellow Australian athlete, and I, I believe this goes into that really nicely, is uh, Dylan Alcott. Uh, being excluded from the U.S. Open in 2018. And you're a big advocate and a big support for him with that. Do you want to give a bit of insight how you felt around that scenario and that situation yourself? Yeah, definitely. I think um, it just one, it was just yeah, another example of, of kind of people outside the, um, outside kind of the sphere of disability trying to take decision-making power away from people with disabilities. And um, it's something that happens a lot. You know, it's something that happens a lot where um, people, for whatever reason, one way or another, think they have um, the right or the authority to, to do these types of things. And, you know, as Dylan put it so eloquently, I think this was, um, you know, during COVID and um, they kind of wanted to cancel the event for, uh, for the wheelchair tennis players because they thought it was too dangerous. And um, as Dylan quite, you know, eloquently put it, um, he said, you know, I'm fitter than 90% of people reading this, and that's 100% true. You know, Dylan's an elite athlete, and there's um, just because he uses a wheelchair to get around, there's no excuse to try and, um, you know, place a, um, kind of a, a stigma around him that he's, you know, more vulnerable or, uh, 
or going to be um, you know more greatly affected. And it, it's his right to 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 be able to do these types of things. So for me, it just made sense to um to stand up for that. Yeah, I I really agree with that because there's so much ambiguity, and you would you would see this as well in in the social sports the way you play that there's no real directions been given from from any state or sporting body at least in Queensland particularly the Sunshine Coast there's been no direction as to what to do for people with disabilities it's always just extra care or considerations be provided for those with disabilities and it's like well for, her, for like yes yes there is a there is a warrant for some individuals that participating in the sports will have some overriding complications that may mean that in if there was an outbreak that there would be severe complications i'm no expert but what i do know is that people want to play sport and they don't want to be told not to and you know if for the everybody community to go back so quickly to playing community-based sports and for the wheelchair and and, and para-athletes to be held back even longer that is what was hurting and i yeah i agreed with what, what dylan was standing up for yeah absolutely yeah it's just um for sure it's you know it's just that um what's happened for so long you know people making decisions for people with disabilities without really considering what they want to do and what what their kind of opinions on the subject are so i think you know it, it was just a real kind of um, moment where we're able to step back and really try and sort of hammer that home that you know maybe we should listen to people with disabilities more and kind of get their perspective on it and um, not try and assume too much. We were actually talking to a mother of a, of a child wheelchair rugby league yesterday. Mm. Her son has been trying to play wheelchair league for quite some time and basically been excluded. So being a part of the team, able to train, able to sit on the bench. Oh, sorry. Um, this was this was all abilities rugby all league. All abilities yeah. rugby league, sorry. Um, so, yeah, and still being a part of the team, still – uh, training and everything, but then when it come to a 60-0 game, we're still not getting put on the field because, oh, you may get hurt or he may get this or it. And looking at it, oh, he has a disability as opposed to, well, no, he's got every every uh, ability as everyone else that's within the sport that can potentially mm -hmm. still get injured out on the field. Um, there's no yeah. reason to exclude them from that sport. Give them a, tr a chance. They've got just as much chance of being hurt as everybody else um, yeah. And you look at exactly, you know, the tennis or botcher or any other sport that's traveling around the world, they're athletes, they're supreme athletes. And if anything, a common thing that James and I are trying to get across is to be able to be an athlete in that sport, you have to challenge as you sell yourself with the electronic chair. You have to get in and out of hotels. You have to be able to get on and off planes. Um, you've got, as we said, hoisting you in the background of your room right now. Um, you know, getting changed each day. You need support workers. So to be an, a, an athlete at that level, it's not something simple. You've actually pushed yourself to the utmost extreme and you deserve every chance to be there and take on the risk of potentially getting COVID or whatever uh, other world pandemics and that that are there. You have every other right, the same as that person does as well, that doesn't have a disability. I think, uh, what is it... Um it's the dignity of risk, having the opportunity to have that risk be there, but not having it stripped back. So it's like you're not actually never experiencing any risk because someone else is dictating these decisions, I think is. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly right. You know, there is that kind of um, bubble wrap kind of um, feel around it where we, when it comes to disability, um, a lot of people in society want to kind of just wrap us in bubble wrap and um, keep us away from any danger, but it's not. That's not life, you know, that's not life for anybody and it shouldn't be. And um, we should have the same opportunity as everybody else does to take risks and to 
to experience failure is to experience suffering and whatever might happen that um it's not the right thing to do just to wrap this up and bubble wrap and keep it safe forever it's um you know you don't you don't get to experience all of the um all of the really special stuff in life if you do that yeah exactly the take a seat podcast is in your ears thanks to the suncoast spinners the suncoast spinners are a wheelchair-based sporting club they run social inclusion programs including but not limited to basketball and rugby if you want to get involved with the Suncoast Spinners programs, you can just rock up at Mergen, Morayfield and Sippy Downs on Wednesdays, Fridays and Saturdays or contact them on Instagram, Facebook or their website www.suncoastspinners.com.au. The Suncoast Spinners programs are for people of all ages and abilities. They're looking for players, officials and volunteers to help with all of their programs. So make sure you check out the Suncoast Spinners on Facebook, Instagram, or on their website again, www.suncoastspinners.com.au. Cameron, uh, mate, I think it's about time that we, we take a step towards the hard cards. It is time for the hard cards. So, Dan, what we have is a deck of cards here, and they've got all different numbers on the back of it. James has forgotten the cards today, so we're going to slightly change it a little bit. Normally, we'd have a diamond and a spade and everything, but this time... We need you to pick a number between 1 and 32. You're going to pick three numbers, and we're going to read out all the questions. Um, you don't have to answer all of them. You can answer one. You can answer all three. Your choice. But by reading these questions out and then answering them, they're from the internet, they're from our guests, and they're really difficult questions to answer. So you want to give us a, your first number? Far away. We'll, we'll one get there. to 32. Yeah. All right, let's do it. One thirty-two. Let's go seven. 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 Oh, I like that. Oh, That's nice and early. In this I one. do like that one. Seven's my second favorite number, which makes it even easier too. Okay. Good stuff. <laughs> so the question is: Are you scared of being lonely? Yeah. Um. Wow. That's interesting. Um. I don't. I don't think I really am. Actually. Um. To be honest, I I've lived alone for for a fair few years, so I've spent a lot of time by myself. I think I'm really comfortable with who I am. So I've, um, you know, I don't really have, I don't have too many qualms with, with just hanging out myself, to be honest, which I think is something I'm actually proud of, to be fair, because I know a lot of people who, who deliberately surround themselves with people because they don't want to be alone and they don't want to kind of um, hang out with the, the, the voice in their own heads. For me, um, that's a person I'm totally happy to be around. So I'd say not really. I'm I'm pretty happy um to be by myself. Yeah. I think there's a big difference between lonely and alone, and I think in, in you know in awe of, of of your your ability to be happy and uh, sort of content with being being in your own and for for so long. Do you think that that comes from a, uh, a sensation of this belonging in the the botcher community that you've found since fifteen? Yeah, I think it is, and I think it's um. Having spent that time by myself, you know, at the start it wasn't all that fun, I'd rather say. But I think just just having that experience of being alone with my thoughts and being alone, you know, um, you know, just thinking and uh, and just kind of hanging out, it's, it's given me a real level of comfort with um, with where I'm at and um, you know, in life. And I think it also just stems from from a contentness for sure as well with, with my life and um, with what I'm doing. And um, you know, it's there's not really any demons back there that. That I need to worry about. So it's um yeah, it's just it definitely is just that level of contentness and um and satisfaction for sure. Do you feel that you've built a network around yourself with obviously Ashley being there all the time? You spend thirty eight plus hours a week together with training, uh, by what I've read, uh, as a support worker. Have you built a network 
around yourself that, that makes you not feel lonely as well, potentially? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I often have, you know, I have such a great network, as you mentioned. So I've got, I've got an amazing family. Um, I've got my, my girlfriend now that I live with, and she's absolutely fantastic. And, um, and then with Ashley and my, my broader support network, you know, I've, I've always got a lot of people I can reach out to. So I think that that definitely is um, a, a bonus for sure. So that's something that's, um, that factors into it. And um, I think everyone needs that, you know, um, in general, I think we're kind of social creatures as human beings and, um, and we need to have that kind of sense of belonging. And um, for me, that does fall within not only the blockchain community, but also within the, the amazing people I have around me. Um, something you did just touch on there, as an exercise physiologist at Enhanced Living, we do have a lot of clients that are searching for a life partner or a girlfriend or boyfriend, husband, wife. And it's something that we're, James is about to start to set up with us as well, is uh, dating and, you know, speed dating and different things. How did you find that aspect of, of meeting your girlfriend now and now moving in together? As you said, you do have a severe disability and, and my understanding is she does not. Um, how, how did you go about that? Yeah, look, I think it took me a long time, honestly. Like, and and um, as I, as I've said to you guys, how, how comfortable I am in my own skin and, and all these things. But it took it. It was like an extra level that I had to kind of get past within myself. Um, was kind of confidence in in the dating aspect of life, um, despite feeling you know kind of um, more happy and more um, not embarrassed about my disability. Um, I still had kind of those fears around how I would be received in the dating world by people without disabilities. Um, so that was something I had to really mentally kind of challenge myself on and try and get past. So for a long time, I was um, I was really hesitant to, towards dating. But over, I think, some time and just some, just some work on myself and work on trying to um, change some thought patterns and trying to just um, be a more confident person, I kind of just started putting myself out there. and. I was on some dating apps and um, went on a few dates here and there. And um, as kind of everyone experiences, it's a bit of a hit and miss type of world out there. But um, I met up with Jess on a date um, through Tinder of all places. And uh, we met up and um, hit it off. And um, yeah, I've never really looked back since. So I think it kind of just starts with that um, that acceptance of, of your disability and that acceptance um, that you are worthy of, of that relationship. and um, and from that point, it's just putting yourself out there and not being afraid of the rejection that might come um, because that kind of is a necessary step in the process towards eventually achieving what you want to achieve. That's well, awesome. I'm sure I'll be taking a lot out of this episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know exactly what you mean. Um, I now have a lovely partner with two children, um, but it's exactly like that where, you know, you put yourself out there, you've got that emotional attachment to it, you feel scared um some people will take it down a route that's not for yourself and um it's not easy and and there's going to be a lot of people that will listen to this in particular that are either a parent of a child that's trying to get into that um realm or as i said a lot of my clients in particular at enhanced living are very much down that avenue of trying to find a partner trying to get into the dating world so a mindset like yourself is unbelievable to be able to do exactly that that's that's perfect so card number two um let's go with let's go with 22 i don't know why but let's just do it what is your negative self-talk 
Okay. I would say a lot of the time, especially with Botcha, I still have a lot of doubt around um, my ability as a player, which is strange because you look at my kind of my history and the, the successes that I've had and you probably assume that, you know, I'm such a confident and um, and a player and that, you know, when I step on the court, I have the kind of full belief in them. I'm going to be able to get the job done. But it's really, it's really not like that. And I think, you know, I remember when I was first starting out, and, um, you know, I was 18, I was at my first event and I was looking around at the best players in the world and I was seeing them play such amazing botcher and I was thinking, man, those guys must just, you know, um, feel so happy and so, you know, content and confident when they step onto the court that they're going to be able to play well. Um, and that would be such a nice place to be in. But um, now that I'm at that point where I'm, you know, objectively playing some really good botcher, there is still that doubt every time I step on the court, whether I'm playing the world number one or, the world's number 200 that, um, you know, something's going to go wrong and I'm not going to play well and, and all those negative emotions, um, come back into action. And, um, it, it's always, it's always a battle that I have. I get into the call room and, um, those feelings creep in and, and, and you think, oh man, why do I put myself through this every time? You know, it's just, <laughs> is it worth it? Um, but then you step off the court with the win and, and all of a sudden it's all worth it again. So I think it's just, um, you know that's probably a story for most for most sports people, and I think um, you know a lot of people looking from the outside. They sometimes see sports people, and they kind of you know they idolize them, obviously, but they they kind of like superheroize them as well. And it's like it's not really like that. Like we're all just we're, we're normal people, and we experience the same doubts and the same the same feelings of of inadequacy that everyone else feels, and. Um, the difference is, I think, with a lot of people is they hide away from it. Um, whereas it, when you're playing sport, you've got to just um, push through. And, and it kind of is a good life lesson in that way for me, that, you know, if you experience those uncomfortable emotions that you need to just um, to push on and, and it's just, you know, a stepping stone in the right direction towards achieving your goals. So that's how I like to look at it now. But, yeah, it still doesn't make it any, any more um, fun. <laughs> yeah. when, when you say push on, do you mean... As in, like that might be a so a coping strategy in, in terms of pushing forward. Like you just sort of you're you're coaching yourself in your head. Like just keep going. You got this. And would you reference that to positive self talk? So instead of you know, giving yourself negative comments, you're now giving yourself positive comments that you know you. Yeah, I mean, you know, you've got to actively change it. I reckon is the cheese. So that's um where a lot of my kind of training, um, you know, my my sports like training and my my just my general psychology training has been that when those negative thoughts come and they do come you know i feel them naturally every time i'm about to play is that you know i mean you know my balls aren't going to roll properly i'm gonna you know i'm gonna make the wrong decisions here i'm gonna do this wrong here and whatever all those things come into your head and um the, the coping strategy or, or, or the way that you have to the way that you have to overcome that is by changing those and by by reinforcing those kind of positive things that, you know, you've done the work, you, you've put in all the work, you know what you're doing, um, you're going to go on court, you're going to execute the way you want to execute. And it's, 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 you have to repeat that and you have to do that over and over again. And um, yeah. but ultimately, yeah, ultimately it does pay off. Last one. Final question. Final question. Give well, us another number. Yeah, let's go... 15 for the year I started Botcher. 15, oh yes. That's a good way to put it. If someone says, I have bad news for you, what do you think happens? Okay. 
I would definitely think it would be something bad has happened to my, my partner, quite honestly. Um, that's what we hit closest to home. And that would be probably the most devastating thing that could happen in, in my world right now. We're so close. Um, we have such a such a great relationship. And um, to think that anything bad might happen to I'd be it'd be devastating. So that would be number one for sure. So to slightly tweak the same question, in a sporting aspect, if someone said to you, I've got bad news, what would be the first thing that comes to your mind? Probably think that maybe my classification's been removed from the Paralympics, maybe. Would okay. Give Give us some more yeah. insight to that. Uh, yeah. Obviously, classification. Yeah, well, and yeah, give us some more insight. Why would you you'd think that? Well, yeah, I mean, it happens a lot um, in Paralympic sport that different sports, different different classifications of sport get brought in and brought out um, between between Paralympic Games. So within Botcha, um, that we've had some significant changes since Tokyo in relation to the structure of the competitions. So we're now broken into um, female and male. So we, we're gender split now, whereas we've always been a gender blind sport. So now that's going to be very different. And there's going to be, you know, men playing against men, women playing against women and um, no crossover. So that's going to be very strange. But, yeah, that, that kind of happens. But then also you look around. Um, I remember I had a really good friend um, in Rio who was a sailor and his sport got scrapped after Rio and he, he can no longer participate in the Paralympic Games uh, in his sport. So I remember how crushed he was to hear that news. So, you know, I'm aware of, of the reality that these things can happen. And, uh, you know, I just hope it doesn't happen to me, basically. It would be shuddering, yeah. We actually have a sneak peek. <laughs> You're the first person to hear this. Uh, we actually have a, a Paralympic athlete from Tokyo, bronze medalist to be exact. Her sport yep. has been removed from the Paralympics and she's now got to go and find an, a new sport. Um, she's going to be yep. on in a couple of episodes' time. Um, but... Yeah, it it is a very big reality, yeah. and yeah. your classification, you individually can be changed all the time as well. You have to be nationally yeah. classified all the time, so you personally can be classified differently and change categories, and you could be a bronze yeah. medalist in BC3, and then all of a sudden classified as BC4, or that can change a yeah. whole dynamic of things, which really is difficult. It's a big shakeup, like I mean, and it comes back to that that uh, the comment with um, Dylan Alcott and Tennis Australia making the decisions again. Um, IPC is slightly different. They are that it is a body that is uh, formed of people with disabilities, and they all do not sorry not all. Uh, there is a large portion that do compete or have competed, and then they've also taken taken a lot of good steps in terms of getting an, uh, an athletes commission or an, an a, a mm. athletes advisory board, I believe it is. So you know they they're making. A, a really, really big attempt to try and reach as many athletes as possible and get the get, make the right decisions. Whether yeah. or not that happens or not, it's it's always going to be questionable. Um, you know, in a, in a team sport, in a com- competitive environment, no one's going to like the call or the decision of the yeah. referee unless yeah. it goes their way. So, you know, it's one of those things that, um, unfortunately, you either have to really sort of push hard and fight it um, yeah. as the Australian women's gliders did for a number of their members. Yeah. It's one of those things, as, as our next guest will sort of uh, will explain a bit further as to what, what her next steps are. Is she going to find a new sport or, um, yeah, what will she do? Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I think you have to always advocate, I guess, for your, for your interests and um, especially if it's, you know, something that is, uh, you know, represented by a large number of 
the people affected that it's it's important to be that advocative kind of person but at the same time you're right you know you have to respect the decision and you have to um to move on and, and make the most of it so it's um yeah it's it's something that i'd be interested to hear more about for sure um and whoever your next guest is um hopefully they do find a a new sport that they can continue their career in. We've got him hooked already. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in the life of Daniel Michelle, if the sport was removed completely um, and didn't exist, what would you do? Where Where do you think you would see yourself going? Very Yeah, it's a good question. It's not something I've thought too much about, honestly, especially up until recently. Um, you know, in my life after Botcha, I haven't really considered it a whole lot. I guess more recently... I've been thinking a little bit about, you know, what I might do if I get done playing, you know, and unfortunately for me, if everything goes well, I should be able to hang up the boots whenever I feel like I want to. It shouldn't be something that I'm forced out. Um, but yeah, it, it is. It's, it's an interesting one because I'm, I'm not too sure. I haven't really come to the answer of what I would do. Um, I know I want to stay in the, the sports space for sure. I'd love to coach my sport um, in the future if, if it's still around um, but as you say if, if it's removed from the Paralympics and then I'd have to move into something else and um, I think I've, I've developed a lot of skills through Botcha that would allow me to, to be effective in in you know administrating or coaching a wide range of sports and um, I'd definitely be keen to to move in that direction for sure. That's awesome that's that's amazing to hear yeah, yeah. well I, I want to really say you know really big thanks for your time this morning Dan it's been been amazing to have you on board yeah, there's there's things that I've I've taken personally from from your uh, from your answers from some of the things that we've spoken about, and I'm sure many people will be able to grab uh, many many more things that they can implement into their own lives. So a really big thank you for for jumping on board and sharing your your thoughts, your experiences, your stories, um, and answering the questions with us. Um, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on more, uh, on board this morning. Um, we've loved every second of it. It's been great, mate. Like your mindset, your mission, your pushing forward, giving kids purpose, bringing them into the sport, being a role model, uh, you know, everything that you're bringing into, but also talking about your openness with your relationship and how you got into that aspect and everything that you've spoken about today is resonating so well with not just us, but a lot of people that we're talking to. And it's a big reason why we've started the project and why we're inviting people to come on and, and take a seat with us and tell their story is because of exactly your life experiences, there is a five-year-old or a six-year-old or even a 45-year-old uh, that is going through the same type of scenario and learning from other people is the best way to. One thing that we have opened up to a lot of people is if someone did come up and ask you the question, would you be willing to give them a hand as to either getting into boccia or other sports or learning how to travel around the world, um, getting that bionic arm, you know, if someone come and ask you questions, would you open the door for them to do that? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I believe truly. And um, in being, you know, a role model in every sense of the word, and um, that, that involves, um, you know, sharing the knowledge you've acquired. So for me, no no, no doubt in my mind, yeah, I'm, I'm more than happy to help anyone who, who um, you know, wants to learn from me. Absolutely love that. We'll we'll be sure to to grab your Instagram and a few other details. And if anyone reaches out to us, we'll we'll be sure to pass them on to you with any. Yeah, perfect. Sounds good, mate. Once again, thank you very much. It's yeah. been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode. 
We appreciate you rating and reviewing the podcast, but most importantly, sharing it with people you think it will impact the most. Before we go, again, a massive thanks to our sponsor, the Sunco Spinners. The Sunco Spinners are a social wheelchair-based sporting club. They operate multiple programs for people of all ages and abilities in basketball, rugby, and more. Follow the Sunco Spinners on Facebook, Instagram, and find out more about them at sunkospinners.com.au.